Welcome on into Studio Two. Hello, everybody. I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. Hello, I am Cherry Gregg. And later in the show, we'll talk about Meta's new social media platform, Threads. Over 100 million people have already signed up, including both you and I, Avi. Yes, We're already I have in there. Up. But what does all this mean? For Elon Musk's Twitter, and what does it tell us about the state of social media? Is Zuckerberg really the savior of social media? Email us your questions, your comments at studio2 at whyy.org. I sensed some cynicism <laughs> in the way a that little was bit, phrased. Little bit, okay. little bit. Cherry, I'm also very excited today to share the story of a great Philadelphia athlete with you. I think a name that more people should know. Vic Satius grew up here in Philly and won Wimbledon 70 years ago. Vic turns 100 this year. He's a very modest guy, so I am glad that we can celebrate him and his success today on Studio 2. Pretty cool. Definitely looking forward to that. And in just a little bit, we'll speak with Pennsylvania House Speaker Joanna McClinton about the Crown Act, which just passed the Pennsylvania House. But first, we're going to dig into some headlines. I have to give you the shovel, right? Yay! You catch it on pretty quickly, <laughs> Here's the shovel. Avi. Here's the shovel. There you go. So have you seen the new small green kind of flowery spaces in and around Philly? Um, small lots. They're the size of a few parking spaces with some planters, a bench or two, maybe even a mini library. They're called parklets. They're viewed as these teeny tiny parks with colorful chairs and sitting areas. And guess what, Avi? People want more of them. More parklets. The people demand them. They demand them. Mayor Rendy has a story on BillyPen.com this morning about an organization that will help neighbors design these parklets and navigate all the red tape that makes it difficult to bring them to life. And the, the, the organization is called Streetbox PHL. They want three projects to start. They'll even cover the fees associated with the application and permit process, which can be pretty confusing. But advocates say they make the area safer for people to walk across the street. They're pretty cool. They also bring foot traffic, um, which means more business for small businesses. And they're just really cute and nice. The cost, though, Avi, which kind of like made my hair blow back a little bit, Mm -hmm. $60,000 just for one. And apparently this includes like the design planning and installation cost, because if you even want to put a park bench, you know, on a city public street, it could cost thousands of dollars. I want your take on this. Yeah. Well, you said your hair blew back. Mine did, too. I don't have very much hair, but if I did, it would blow straight back. Yeah. I guess it's sort of a it just shows that even little improvements, you have to put a lot of intention into Mm -hmm. them. Uh, You have to do a lot of cut through a lot of red tape. So it's interesting that I, I almost wonder if this project is as much about how to navigate like city bureaucracy as it is about how to create a parklet. Um, I'm curious. I hope, I hope that they continue to pop up. They look like streeteries to me. Yeah. They're yeah. just, you just don't have to frequent a business in order to use one. Can I also just say that this, I just love pocket parks, which are different than parklets, but I love a small park. I love a small mm-hmm. park, like four benches, a few bushes, a little bit of green space mm-hmm. just tucked into the city. It's like these little oases. I love stumbling across Pocket parks. More pocket parks in addition to more parklets would be my plea. People love to sit wherever. I mean, think about WHRY. We have that bench out there and like people like legit come by and just sit there. People love the bench. They love the bench more than the radio (laughs) station. They come and sit there all the (laughs) time. There is a bench outside of WHRY if you want to come visit us. Um, Let's talk about some more street infrastructure. Mm -hmm. You know, in this program here, Studio 2, we are very... um, 
pro public bathroom, or at mm -hmm. least talking about them. We had a whole yeah. show about public bathrooms. And Philly just installed um, its first Portland loo. It's actually mm -hmm. a, a pair of stalls. Mm -hmm. These Portland loos are public bathrooms, and they're supposed to be kind of indestructible. And they give people a, a place to stop and uh, go to the restroom, wash up. The first one was installed at City Hall, opened yesterday. Very entertaining a tweet thread. Twitter, by yes. the way. Let's put a pin, pin in that. Tweet thread by the Inquirer Stephanie Farr about the unveiling of this first Portland Loo. Very informative, yeah. In, in, a great thread in, in Philly. And um, it was informative. It was entertaining. Unfortunately, within an hour, it was clogged, which yeah. was a bit distressing. But then she was able, I think, to like tweet about or like use a QR code to alert mm -hmm. people to come and unclog it. So, so failures and successes uh, the public voted to name the first Portland Lou, and they named it the Philly Flush, Flush with a PH. I have to say I was a little disappointed by that name. I thought mm -hmm. the obvious one was Porta John, J-A-W-N. <laughs> Even though I'm not a fan, I think John is overused. It was just so obvious in this case yeah. that, it, that we really should have gone that direction. I find Philly Flush a little too tame. Uh, but uh, your thoughts on any of that, Cherry? Yeah, just shout out to the construction worker who literally um, – broke in um, Philly Flush. Um, yes. Allegedly, according to Stephanie uh, Farr, reportedly, reportedly uh, they, you know, this person went in there and came out in an hour and the toilet was no longer functional. So Wait, no, 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 that's not what happened. Well, one person went one, in there and it was, it was no, 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 no. This person went in after people had been using it Got and it. was in there for like an hour and came out. And then it was clogged. So we a lot of construction workers listen. Thank you guys yeah. for testing the system so that they can get it right. Yeah, stress test. Stress test. We need it. We, we need, need it. this. And I'm excited to use it myself. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm really excited about tonight. And here's why. Can you finish this segment or do you, <laughs> do you want me to take Look, it? I'm about to start Because <laughs> you're going to get carried away in the music. I am so excited mm -hmm. because Queen B, and if you don't know who she is, where have you been? Beyonce is kicking off the U.S. leg of her World Renaissance Tour, right? Right here in Philadelphia tonight. I will be there, right? It kicks off at 7 o'clock in Philly at the Lincoln Financial Field. I cannot wait. That was Dangerously in Love. Came out in 2003. A very young Beyonce singing about her love to the one and only Jay-Z. Oh, I just love this song. It makes me feel like you're, I'm you're floating. Hope, you, yes. We should reiterate. You will be there. I will be there. You yes. hope she plays this song? I you, hope she plays this okay. song. Is this, this is the, one of my favorite Is this the Beyonce number one song? song that you hope she she does? Yeah. Well, I love all her fit. You know, okay. the big ones. Yeah. I love all those. But I am a big I love ballads by Beyonce, mm -hmm. and that is my absolute favorite. What's your concert approach, Cherry Gregg? I'm just curious because it's, you know, you only get one shot at this thing. It's going to be hot, uh, but you still want to have fun. Uh, you can't bring a lot of stuff into the stadium these days. Like, yeah. how do you game plan this? Well, I got a clear purse that meets the requirements. <laughs> Fantastic. I plan on paring down. I have jeans, a mm -hmm. nice, cute shirt, and I'm just going to keep it simple. be there. Keep it simple. Yeah. Comfortable shoes. That's how we're going to do it. Can I also mention uh, that there are some Philly connections to Beyonce? Absolutely. Uh, the, the MC, Kevin Jay-Z yes. from the House of Prodigy, is from Philly. Shout out. And then Billy Penn noted that Beyonce's, I believe, first film role yes. way back in 2001, I want to say? 
uh, it was a long, long time ago, yeah. put it like that. Um, she was playing a character from Philadelphia, and like half the, the movie was set in Philadelphia. I had never even heard of this film. Um, so shout out to Beyonce's first movie. And I'll also say I looked at the tour schedule, Cherry. Yes. she's not. Her next show is not till July 15th in Nashville. She's yeah. got a few days in between. Beyonce, if you're listening and you're in town and you're tuned in to your, you know, the local public radio station, as you would do when you go to a new city, um, we do have a show scheduled tomorrow with a lot of great stuff. But we can, mo- we can move some yes. stuff around. So come on into studio, too. We'll be, we'll be happy to have you, okay? We'll be, and someone else we're happy to have today. Yes, let's, we should do that. <laughs> um, Joanna McClinton, Pennsylvania's House Speaker, Democrat, serving parts of Philadelphia and Delaware counties. We, we brought uh, Speaker McClinton onto the program to talk about the Crown Act. The Crown Act stands for Creating a Respectful and Open World for Natural Hair. There is a national effort to pass Crown Act legislation that prohibits discrimination for hair style or texture. And this is um, really about black Americans who have faced discrimination yeah. often in the workplace for having afros, braids, or locks. The Pennsylvania House just passed a bill last week to end race-based hair discrimination, and it got through with uh, massive bipartisan support. Um, Sp- House Speaker McClinton is one of the sponsors had introduced this bill twice before in 2019 and 2021, but it never really got consideration under Republican leadership. She is joining us now to talk about what the bill's passage means for ending hair discrimination and what happens next. House Speaker McClinton, welcome back to Studio Two. So glad to be back, and I am as excited as Cherry is about <laughs> Queen Beyonce yeah. this evening. Yeah, look I at- am happy to report that uh, Black women all across PA have been as focused as the Queen's team on how we wear our hair and how we show up in the world. That is why this legislation is needed because in so many environments, people still say, oh, that's not professional. <laughs> and unfortunately deny opportunities, um, particularly uh, for natural styles, which either resembles or is actually how our hair grows out of our heads. So we're excited to get this legislation out of the house. Yeah, and I'm sitting here with uh, knotless braids, smiling right now a little bit. And so I want to talk about um, this Crown Act. It pat- There was bipartisan support. Why do you think it has taken so long uh, to get this done. Um, you've been trying to get this this law passed for a few years now. That's right. Two consecutive sessions. Uh, so long that my co-sponsor is not even in the state house anymore. She's down in D.C. in Congress. Uh, United States Rep. Summer Lee. Uh, it took a long time because every single year I introduced it and you know worked across the aisle. Uh, understanding the political uh, considerations that the majority Republican caucus had at the time, I'd say, you know, we don't have to run this as a standalone bill. We can put this in one of the code bills that goes along with the budget uh, because it's amending the human relations code. And they'd always say, our caucus doesn't want to do anything with race. Our caucus cannot do this. Our caucus thinks that this is, um, you know, some sort of Black Lives Matter movement. And I would, you know, take the time to dispel, like, this is a real challenge. And the yeah. the interesting part is, no matter how much we all have a percentage of a majority of our constituencies, every single one of us across Pennsylvania represents a person of color, uh, whether it's like my district, where it's like 90% people of color, or whether it's certainly much slimmer in other parts of the state, 
So this is something people need. This is something that people need to be aware of, that it does happen and it does exist. And even last week on the floor of the house, people were saying before the vote, well, this, this isn't anything. This is just silly. It's not needed. This isn't necessary. But I have to give a big shout out to a couple of colleagues, uh, representative nearby, Craig Williams, who's right in Chester in Delaware County, uh, stood up and gave a long uh, but meaningful speech explaining how we have to, at different points in our careers, look through someone else's lens. And it was moving. And I believe one of the keys that got us mm. to a large bipartisan support. So uh, help make this real for folks listening. Give me an example of something that would have been legal before this law uh, passes. And I know it has not been signed yet, but let's imagine it, it, it gets through both chambers and is signed. Yeah. Give me an example of something yeah. that would have been illegal, illegal but now would be illegal. Absolutely. So essentially, it's not outlawing any actions that happen in a work setting. However, it's providing standing. So you can call your lawyer and say, hey, I was lined up for a job. They took one look at my afro and said that that hair doesn't belong here. So you can call your attorney and say, I now think I have a claim. What do you think? Here's what occurred. And uh, when it does get through the Senate and to Governor Shapiro's desk, uh, people of color across the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania will not be able to be denied opportunities based on how their natural hair is uh, growing out of their head or how they're wearing it or sporting it. And it, this is very distinct because some people do get it confused with uh, safe and healthy standards. Uh, certainly, you know, you have to wear hair nuts when you're cooking and all sorts of other manufacturing environments. You have to be fully in compliance with those, but there are real opportunities where people have not been protected. Uh, we've seen them in the sports world more often. It's very notable. Uh, many of us remember about four years ago, the um, his first name is Marcus in New Jersey, uh, cut his locks publicly high school student uh, before being able to compete in a match. Uh, so we've seen things like that in the sports world, but we want to make sure in the work world that people are protected. Yeah. And I think about the Senate. It's going to go to the Senate now. What are the odds as you looking at this actually making it to Governor Shapiro's desk? So the odds are much better than they would have been if it had just been a party line vote. When we get bills passed across that are, you know, not just one Republican, but we're talking about over uh, 75, that is significant. That sends a member a message to the Senate leadership that this is something that's popular with their own constituents. You know, I have a state senator, like not only do we live in their districts, but you know, we do a lot of work together in the community. So we're hoping that the message is sent to the uh, Senate that this is bipartisan, that almost the entire House passed it, and that we need to update the laws in Pennsylvania so that we are protecting everyone. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on Studio Two. That is House Speaker Joanna McClinton. Glad to be here. Have a good day. You too. Um, coming up, we're going to shift over to social media and talk about threads versus Twitter, the debate is on, Sherry Gregg. That is correct. Looking forward to that. Email us your questions, your comments, studio2 at whyy.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. 
Welcome back, everybody, to Studio Two. I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. And I'm Cherry Gregg. Avi, I know you're on threads. You I actually got me to get on threads. I did. <laughs> what do you think about it? It's funny. I did kind of cajole you into you doing did. it, but I don't I don't actually love it. Um, I'm just eager for an alternative to Twitter, which has been harder and harder to use recently. Uh, I think it's all right. Mm-hmm. Um should I get into my specific qualms with it now or save that for save later? Save that for Okay, I think, I think it's okay. It. And you already said, look, if this thing, you know, collapses, don't blame me. I think that was your original response. <laughs> it's not my we'll, fault. We'll see what happens. But I, I've so far so good. I've only made like five threads, so or five posts. I don't Whatever even know called, yeah. what to use it, but we'll see what happens. And I'm still unclear about how this works. And that's why we have the guy to answer all of our questions on Studio 2 today, Sri Srinivasan, I hope I said that right, runs a digital consulting and training business, and he's the former chief digital officer of New York City, the Met Museum, and Columbia University. Sri, welcome to Studio 2. Delighted to be here, and we still don't know what to call all these different platforms. <laughs> We're going to... Like- you're going to help us walk through it, hopefully. Yeah. We're going to walk through maybe, it. Maybe we'll dub some new, uh, <laughs> create some new names today. And, you know, obviously, if we invite someone down from New York City to be on Studio 2 here in Philadelphia, you know they're good. We don't just invite any New Yorker down. So glad to have you, Sri. We also want um, to ask our listeners, if they have any questions, you can email us, studio2 at org. You can respond to the WHYY uh, Twitter account with hashtag Studio 2. So you can tweet at us for this segment. And by the way, we're on threads. You can send a question to me at Avi underscore W-A or Cherry at Cherry Greg. That's what? Two R's and two G's, right? That is correct. I'm not creative enough. I can't think of any other name for myself. So there you go. (laughs) All right. So let's get into the conversation. I'll let you start. Yeah, Sri. We want to just sort of lay out the framework here. How does threads work? And if you could just compare it to Twitter a little bit. So that we can understand what's the same, what's different, um, and just understanding how how it works as a new platform. Sure. Uh, by the way, I'm a New Yorker who loves Philadelphia. And, Good start, uh, Sri. <laughs> Lay it all. Spent the summer working in Conshohocken and coming in uh. every weekend that I could, and uh, it only great memories of a wonderful town where food is better in some cases than new york not uh, all very strong uh, start <laughs> and i'm in la at the moment uh, but dreaming of the east coast i will say that this is a, a time where there's so much going on in social and i love that we are our audience is able to talk to us on twitter while talking about threads and then maybe thinking about all the other platforms so to a baseline understanding is that this is really a an effort by Mark Zuckerberg and the folks at the meta company that's Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp to go after Twitter by launching a text only tool from Instagram. So it's a little hard to keep this all straight, but this is basically Instagram's attack on Twitter when it's been the most weak because of all the antics of one Elon Musk. And it allows you to do text and some photographs, uh, but it basically requires your Instagram account. If you have one, then it'll connect directly and it's very easy to use that way. But one of the things is if you get bored of Mm. threads at some point and you want to delete it, 
then it deletes your Instagram account as well. So you have to know that if you're getting Sneaky. into this, uh, you could, of course, just turn off your Instagram, your turn off your Threads account if you needed to. But this is very early days in Threads. There are some good features and some uh, problematic ones we can get into. But the biggest feature may just be what Avi said, that it's not Twitter. Yeah. And people are dying to be on something that's not Twitter, but can't quite leave. If you remember during some of the previous elections, people would say, if so-and-so gets elected, I'm moving to Canada. Well, they didn't move to Canada, but they always wanted that to be an option. And by the way, the Canadians didn't want any of us. <laughs> um, yeah, I was actually going to ask you that. Let's get into that. Do you see in the numbers, the initial numbers, which are strong, do you see anti-Elon Musk sentiment or do you see genuine enthusiasm for threats? It's hard to parse when there are millions of accounts. And by the way, the bots are already there. So we want to make it clear to anybody listening, this is not some perfect social media paradise that where you will be joining. And uh, besides, Twitter had its problems before Mr. Musk. So that's also should be established. There are lots of problems, of course. So as I'm watching it, I think a lot of the initial users are folks who are looking for something else other than Twitter. You know that there were other names that sound uh, that will be familiar to some of our listeners and some not at all. Things like Mastodon and Post and Blue Sky and T2. Uh, these are all pegged directly as, hey, leave Twitter and come to us. We are safer, better, more sophisticated than what Twitter is going to be, given the level of discourse now on it. But we know that on threads, it's so early that it doesn't have direct messaging. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have hashtags. It doesn't have all these things at launch that will eventually come along and be relevant and useful in people's lives. We have to note one more thing, that there have been cases of social media platforms that come out of nowhere get a lot of attention because they have a strong backing of a major company, but then disappear. Someone here at least will remember Google Plus, mm -hmm. which shot to the top of the charts and then disappeared. So we have to keep that in mind. Uh, and so I am the 32,854,684th uh, threads user. I think you're like, congratulations. Yeah. Congratulations. I mean, there's over, and I have 600 new followers. I don't know how I got them. And cause I've posted like less than a handful of times. Um, so how does this sort of like this hundred million plus new users sort of compare to other launches and, um, and, and, and just sort of like, who are you seeing over here on, on this new, new app? What's yeah, the vibe? We're, we're seeing we're seeing, first of all, people who love Instagram already, and so they're coming over. We're seeing folks who are uh, looking to escape from the world of Twitter. We're looking for people also who are just curious about new platforms and want to try things. And there's so much drama on Twitter that they are looking for something else. I remember when I was chief digital officer at the Metropolitan Museum, I put my boss on Instagram and not on Twitter. And people said, Sri, you're Mr. Twitter. Uh, why wouldn't you put him on Twitter? And I said, there's less drama on Instagram. And this was 10 years ago. And so you're you're finding all kinds of people trying to just find their way within Threads and seeing what will happen. The uh, the team that worked at Threads, is, has, has, the reporting has been that they were not expecting this kind of 
initial sign up, this kind of initial bump to the uh, uh, to people trying it out. So they have been dealing with a lot of uh, tech issues. Over time, things will settle down and we'll see, does this become an, uh, a real alternative to Twitter or do people keep looking for something else? Or could we hope, pray that something somehow gets better at Twitter itself? We are talking with Sri Srinivasan, who runs Digimentors, a digital consulting and training business. Um, we're also getting your threads and tweets. They're starting to come in on threads, by the way, which is interesting. Um, or you can email us your thoughts, studio2 at whyy.org. Um, we started to touch on this earlier, three, but there are aspects of threads that certainly look a lot like Twitter, but it doesn't have hashtags. It doesn't have DMs um, for people who know that terminology. Do you think you know why it has copycatted some stuff, but not all of the stuff initially? Because it does seem like a lot of that other stuff is coming, but it's not there initially, and I'm actually not sure why. So why does it seem like they took, they lifted, I don't want to say lifted, but they 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 closely mirrored some stuff from Twitter without taking everything over initially? I think part of it is just the mechanics of putting together a platform that can stand the pressure of tens of millions of users you want to start small you want to start simple you want to make sure the infrastructure is there and then build on it and some of us are old enough to remember when gmail which is now ubiquitous and the most popular email system you had to get an invite to join and that was the only way to participate in it and you you were given like a hundred invites you could invite your friends etc and that's how they made sure it scaled, right? And that's a big word in technology, can it scale? And in this case, by going out, rather than using an invite system, they made it easier for them to get all of these people, but they could not have all the features that they would have liked to have and we would have liked to see. So we're giving them an enormous benefit of the doubt and of all the companies in the world, giving Meta and Facebook the benefit mm. of the doubt is hilarious because we know the damage Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook, Instagram, yeah. WhatsApp have done in the world. And us Americans know what they did to the 2016 election, for example. But in other countries where I do some work, we hear about real problems beyond elections, about violence that is accelerated on these platforms thanks to the neglect and in inattention that has been given to them so in countries like india myanmar the rohingya crisis was amplified and made possible by facebook wow. uh in places like that because they didn't have language uh moderators and things like that so it's so weird for me as someone who has been uh complaining about facebook all these years suddenly saying let's look to Facebook to help us from Twitter. That tells you how bad the situation is in Twitter. And I saw a funny tweet about this where someone said, the most amazing thing Elon Musk has done in his life is not launch rockets that can land back vertically or the Tesla car stuff that he's working on. It's that he's made Mark Zuckerberg look cool and trustworthy. Yeah, actually, can we touch on that real quick? Because some of our listeners just might not be familiar with the timeline here. Um, Elon Musk buys Twitter, and what are some of the missteps that uh, the company has made since then? Because I, I do think it's important to note, yes, some people find him distasteful, but there also have been substantive changes to the platform 
that have made it hard to use or alienated some users. So can you take us through some of those changes that that have frankly pissed a lot of people off? Yeah. And and by the way, on, on my Twitter at Sri and on threads at Sreenet, I do uh, constantly point out some of these things happening on Twitter. But basically, about eight months ago, when he took over, he implemented a series of changes. And they have been, in some cases, very small, in some cases, huge. So the big things right away was he took one of the best parts of Twitter, the fact that you could find users who had been verified, journalists, mm. doctors, uh, emergency information folks, uh, in, uh, responders to crises, all of those mm. folks who had that blue check, he turned that upside down completely and removed everyone so that he could sell blue checks to everybody at $8 a piece per month. Now, some of you will say, isn't this more democratic? Yes, it may be in some way. Not everyone can afford $8 a month. But more importantly, there was a system. So when WHY is putting yeah. out something, trust it because of that blue check. It was verified by, by a person at Twitter. So that made it useful. Now, everyone's got a blue check if they want it. And the people who got them were mostly Musk fans. Yeah. And yeah. therefore, it was disinformation, misinformation, lies. And so that was one easy way to see what he has done. The other thing he did was re-platform people who had been taken down on the other platforms as well as Twitter, including President, former President Trump, for their lies for everything else that we know they they're spreading. And he, you know, he calls himself an free speech absolutist. He calls himself a centrist, but having yeah. studied him for a long time, he only responds to the extreme right. He only responds to people who say the worst things. And in a wonderful new twist, he is suppressing threads content on Twitter. So here is Mr. Free Speech preventing that from happening. So he doesn't want yeah. you to see the competition. Yeah, and, and if you're just tuning in, we're speaking with Sri Srinivasan, former chief digital officer of New York City, the Met Museum and Columbia University. Uh, we want to hear from you, your questions. You can tweet at us. You can thread at us uh, um, and, and use the hashtag Studio2 if you're on Twitter. You can also email us at Studio2 um, at whyy.org. And so I want to take one of the threads we received from Ro Mag, who says, my question is, how does threads manage without hashtags? It works so well on Twitter. Love the hashtag link method. And I want to expand on Ro Mag's question from threads because there were certain utility functions of Twitter that I think a lot of people loved, which is that one was the hashtag, because you could see what was trending across your area, across the nation, across the world, and be able to find the latest news very quickly. Um, is Threads at this point as functional as Twitter once was? It is not. And some of the things that you just touched upon, the, the, the hashtag is so important. I love hashtag so much. I once did a TEDx talk just about what I call the misunderstood, misunderappreciated hashtag. Mm. And it, it's something that makes, that brings clarity and usefulness, utility to all this content. The other thing that they've done is take the lists feature on mm that does not exist yet on on uh, on threads 
uh, it would have been so helpful to have lists. So for example, when I start following, I've just been follow. I just followed at Cherry Greg and I followed Avi underscore WA on threads. That's right. Thank we'll you. follow you back. <laughs> I already did, by the way. <laughs> I'd love to put both of you under journalists so that when there's, and I'd want to put you in two buckets. So for example, you know, my mama said, don't label people, but it's really important in social media to label people so you can find them. So I would love to put you under two groups, Philadelphia folks and journalists. So that when there's a story in Philadelphia, I can just click one button and see all my Philadelphia people. I can do that on Twitter. I can't do that now yet. So there are things that will come. And also to note that hashtags were not originally created by Twitter itself. A user started using the hashtag Christmasina, and that's how that came about. So that's not unusual that the features don't exist, but not when they're at tens of millions of users, because it would it should have started more slowly experimented more, built, built, built. Instead, it just went boom, and the world joined. By the way, I'm wrong to say the world joined. The EU yeah. has has stopped and banned uh, threads right now because of privacy concerns. Mm. So th that's another angle to this. Here, while we're jumping in without worrying about privacy over there in Europe, they're very clear. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you a quick question because you mentioned that the hashtag is not unique to Twitter, yet Twitter has threatened to, you know, and there's probably some other, um, you know, features of threads that's not, you know, that's very generic. Like we, it looks very generic to me right now, but Twitter has threatened to sue threads. They've, they're gonna, they've alleged so far, um, you know, breach of possible trade secrets as Meta has hired a number of former Twitter employees. I want you to react to that. And could mm -hmm. this, you know, I'm putting my little legal eagle hat on, could this be a viable lawsuit uh, given the major differences at this point between the two platforms? Well, one of the things that we know Mr. Musk does is he loves to sue people or threaten to sue people like a former president that some of us know and uh, get involved with legal cases and not really follow through. And I mean, that's basically what Musk does. So I wouldn't worry so much about that. He did say that you remember he fired thousands of people, said they were not important or useful to the company. And when they get hired by somebody else, he then is then upset. But Meta and Instagram have said that they did not hire any of the people that they hired from Twitter are not working on threads. Isn't that mm. interesting? Mm. And we'll, we'll, this will go back and forth a little bit, but the, the basic thing with anything with Elon Musk, he, you cannot trust him. Just the way us New Yorkers knew not to trust Donald Trump long before he arrived on the national stage, before the apprentice, before everything else, people in tech who are clear-headed, no, you cannot trust Elon Musk. We have a threader who asked, uh, why did so many people sign up in the first week? And I'll sort of layer upon that. You brought up the specter earlier of Google+, Plus, which had tremendous scale pretty quickly as a Facebook competitor, but then went splat. So how is Threads, uh, which is now run by the Facebook folks, uh, how is Threads similar or different? Do you see that 100 million kind of plateauing for a while? Do you see future growth? Let's look into the crystal ball a little bit here. Yeah, the, uh, I'll look back for a second to Google Plus just to remember fondly that they really tried. Google has had multiple efforts. There was something called Google Wave, Google Buzz, Google Plus. And one of the things we learned from those platforms is that it's a chicken and egg problem. You join a platform because all your 
all your cool friends are there, but your cool friends don't join till some other cool friends are there, right? So it's it's that where do people go first and who goes there? When it comes to these big name companies like Google, like Meta or Instagram, people have some trust and so they do join, but whether they can keep going, are people going to get bored? Are people going to try something else? That's where That's what we don't know quite yet and we will find out in the weeks ahead. In terms of that hundred million number, just to just so that everybody can understand, uh, we're talking about other channels with a billion plus. So Facebook mm-hmm. is two billion, TikTok is billion plus, uh, uh, WhatsApp is two billion, in- Instagram is two billion, right? So those are all at a different scale, and uh, and we have Twitter has always been around the three hundred million. It really hasn't gone up and down. In the last couple of years, there's been some more movement. But that gives you a sense that there's still a long way to go to catch Twitter. But it's really how deeply will people use it? How will it work? How will it connect with Instagram in interesting ways? And where do we go from here? It's all about yeah. utility in our lives. And I got to ask, we have a tweet from Jim. Somebody's still on Twitter. <laughs> Jim says, I joined Threads. Doesn't mean I'm leaving th- Twitter. And I mean, I'm thinking about this. I'm juggling multiple social media sites. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. Now threads, I mean, do people even have the ability to add, to really add another site and to learn it as deeply as they have some of these other more well-established sites that they've probably been on for a decade or or, or at least for years? Yeah. Well, it's an excellent question and something that we all need to ask ourselves. Do we need to be on all these platforms? Will it help our work? Will it make us distracted? And, and who will read us on all these platforms? Just because we have some followers doesn't mean we'll be able to, uh, you know, be able to use all of them in a useful manner. I think one of the things that will shake out in this is where will the journalists who uh, break news go? If they stay on Twitter, people will stay there for the most part, and then others will, you know, move around as as needed. But I think that there's an opportunity here for us to see where this goes in terms of uh, all the different platforms. And in terms of, you know, you think, look at it from a user's point of view. If you're posting the same content on multiple platforms and I'm going to come across them, perhaps that'll, they may be less interested. But there is a dirty little secret of social media that nobody talks about. And that is that almost everyone will miss almost everything you do on social anyway unless you make a mistake. Until you make that Mm. mistake, then everybody will see it. But otherwise you put your stuff out there and not everyone's gonna see it. My good friend Mitra Kalita uh, tweeted yesterday, oh dear, it's Tuesday. I gotta share my column across 74 platforms right now. See you Wednesday. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I know, I wanna speak for a second to the, the segment of listeners who are starting to tune us out because they don't use Twitter. They don't care about Twitter. They don't plan to use threads. Why should we, the general we, care about the future of these apps or the general concept of a text-based public conversation app? And we got about a minute left here. Well, first, let me make a plug for LinkedIn. This is where link. This is LinkedIn's moment. They have 900 million users. It's a professional network. That's where people should be investing their time. It's a great way to build your business, build your connections, build your networks. Back to why you should care is because most people didn't care about Twitter in the first place. Remember that 300 million when everything else is billion plus tells you that most people haven't cared 
but you get so much attention on Twitter because the journalists are there, yeah. celebrities are there, artists are there, sports people, all of that. That's why it's so popular. Now, if those people move everything over to threads, then you will see attention. And that text mode, basically text mode, is attractive, a way to consume a lot of information. That is Sri Srinivasan, who runs Digimentors, a digital consulting and training business. Sri, thanks so much for joining us today on Studio Two. My pleasure. Thank you. Up next, we are taking you to Wimbledon. This is Studio Two from WHYY. Welcome back to Studio Two. Hello, everybody. I'm Avi Wolfman Arendt. And I'm Cherry Gregg. I just realized that last segment, I did not get to say my biggest gripe about threads. I got to save it for another day, Cherry. Yeah. <laughs> I got to get that off my chest at some point. Transitioning, however, to great athletes from Philadelphia. Kobe Bryant, Wilt Chamberlain, mm-hmm. Joe Frazier, Dawn Staley. But today, we're going to celebrate a guy whose name you might not know, but who I think belongs up there with the elite of the elite, a guy who was really once among the best in the world at his sport. Cherry, are you intrigued? For sure, yeah. This sounds very interesting. You've played it up, so lay it all out. (laughs) Better deliver. (laughs) The reason we are bringing you this story now, by the way, is because it is the 70th anniversary of his biggest individual accomplishment. Let's roll the tape. This weekend, the tennis world will watch the conclusion of its most storied tournament, the Championships Wimbledon. Now, there are about 3.97 billion men alive on planet Earth right now, give or take, and just 24 of them can say they have won a Wimbledon singles final. And one of those 24 is this man, Vic Satius. Rhymes with gracious. It's like the word spacious without a P. You wouldn't think a man in such select company would need a shorthand device to help people pronounce his name, but that really is the curse of longevity. This summer marks 70 years since Philadelphia's Vixatius won the Wimbledon Gentlemen's Singles title. Vixatius wins the world's premier lawn tennis title. A congratulation from Nielsen, a terrific reception from the crowd, and now the Wimbledon Trophy is presented by the Duchess of Kent to the 1953 champion, Vic Satius. Satius turns 100 this summer. He's the oldest person to hold the most prized championship in tennis. And he at least has a claim as Philadelphia's most accomplished living athlete. He really is one of the stars of uh, the sports pages. Whether you're in Philadelphia or Barcelona or Wellington, uh, New Zealand, he's known around the world as a uh, phenomenal athlete and tennis player. That is Alan Hornblum, a historian who has written about Satius and become sort of like his public champion. Vic isn't really prone to brag on himself, so Alan does it for him. Vic is a very modest individual. He truly is one of America's great athletes in the post-war period. And his story begins about a century ago in the Overbrook Park section of West Philadelphia. Oh, gosh, I think I was probably about six years old or something like that. 
Seixas' dad, an immigrant from the Dominican Republic, played tennis at local clubs, nothing fancy or especially high stakes, and little Vic would tag along. I chased, chased the balls for him. You know, the guys that played play there, they hit with me once in a while, something like that. So that's how I got started. And once he started, the talent was evident. And by the time he's 8, 9, and 10 years old, he's probably the best player in the area. Vic's tennis prowess earned him a spot at the prestigious Penn Charter School in northwest Philadelphia and later at the University of North Carolina, where he won all but three of his collegiate matches. He's winning tournaments left and right. He's beating players much older than him. Vic was an athletic marvel with a style rarely seen in today's game. He rushed the net at every occasion, using his speed and his reflexes to smother opponents. Which means I didn't, I didn't stay back any longer than I had to. I didn't want the ball to bounce if I could help it. <laughs> and when World War II broke out, Vic did not stay back either. He enlisted while he was in college. I said I didn't want to walk and I didn't want to swim, so I joined the Air Corps. I'd never been near an airplane. <laughs> Vic's stint as a test pilot postponed his dreams of tennis glory. By the time he graduated and climbed toward the top of the world game, he was nearing 30 already. Now, that delay might have squashed his tennis career. Back then, the sport's top tournaments were entirely amateur, meaning Vic couldn't make any money playing tennis. Plus, he wasn't exactly from a posh background. But he was lucky in one key regard. I was fortunate that my father had a, had a business. It was a local plumbing supply business. So when Vic traveled the world playing tennis, there was always a part-time job waiting for him at home in Philadelphia. It didn't make any money, but it didn't cost you anything. And, and you traveled, traveled all over the world and, and, and had a great time doing it. <laughs> in 1953, his travels took him to London, Wimbledon, the pinnacle of the sport. If you ask him how he triumphed that year, Vic is characteristically humble. You see, his kryptonite was an Australian champion named Ken Rosewall, and that year, Rosewall lost in the quarterfinals, clearing Vic's run to the final where he beat a Danish player named Kurt Nielsen. Nielsen shot is out. The 22-year-old Dane, an unseeded player, loses the first set. Uh, I was fortunate because uh, from my point of view, Kurt Nielsen wasn't as difficult an opponent as a couple of others might have been had they reached the finals instead of him. Fortunate, maybe. But Vic did win the U.S. Championship, now called the U.S. Open, in 1954. And he also made the final of the French Open, so, you know, he could play a little. I was pretty agile. Pretty, I moved pretty, pretty well. I moved pretty quickly. I, I, I had the, whatever the attributes you needed for, to be a tennis player, I had him. <laughs> Vic also won 13 major titles as a doubles player, and he had an unusually long career, competing at top tournaments into his early 40s. Now, Vic has no regrets, but his tennis career came at the cost of a career that would have made him money. After all, his prize for winning Wimbledon was a 25-pound shopping voucher. And I had to spend it in the store in Piccadilly. And what did he buy? Oh, I think he bought a sweater or something. I don't know. I think I bought a, a, something, something to do with England or with Wimbledon. A sweater or something. 
After his tennis days were over, Vic tried his hand as a stockbroker, he tended bar, he ran the tennis program at a fancy country club. Today, he lives in a tennis community north of San Francisco. He's still near the sport, even though he doesn't watch it much on television, and he can't play. I'm 99 years old. My playing days are over. (laughs) What he still has are the memories. I've had a a wonderful life, I think. I have the the memories and uh, a lot of good things to remember and think about. And now, 70 years after Vic's greatest individual victory, we have the occasion to remember him. I'm just... uh, very pleased that you're still thinking of me. <laughs> the pleasure is ours. And you can remember this. Vic Satius, 1953 Gentlemen's Singles Champion, Wimbledon. That was really lovely, Avi. It lived up to the hype. I hope so. I hope so. By the way, that last song was a big hit in 1953, which is why I mixed it in there. It was Eartha Kitt, I think. C'est si bon. It's so good. Very beautiful. And I want to shout out Vic and wish him a happy 100th in advance. Coming up this summer. There you go. So that wraps up Studio 2 for today on a lovely note there. Our producers are Debbie Builder, Paige Murray-Bessler, and Andreas Copes. Al Banks is our engineer. For more of our show, you can head on over to whyy.org slash Studio 2, or you can download us wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate and review from Studio 2. I'm Cherry Gregg. And I'm Avi Wolfman-Arendt. Happy Beyonce Day, everybody, (laughs) and thank you for joining us.